Welcome to episode 466 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a grand conversation with writer, lawyer, professor, Michael Blumenthal. We discuss growing up in the Washington Heights section of Manhattan being lost having time to figure things out justice the human condition Hungary white space on the page his relationship with David Souter drinking with George Conrad Carl Jung the human psyche the power of evil versus the power of good. Just some light subject matter. A grand conversation with Michael Blumenthal this go-round. We have an EWSA titled Branches, and we share an excerpt from Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. And we have a poem called Prince. All of this, of course, will be infused imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it then. Episode 466 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours.
The years are numbered, and you wonder if you are ever going to get it. David Sidaris reminded me the other night during a lecture the importance of connection, hearing, listening, seeing. It's April 1st today, and being a fool is on full display. Walking around the neighborhood, up in these mountains with a white, long, uneven beard, balding with a ponytail and pockets filled with plastic bags from the grocery store as I walk Katie girl on a long leash. The clouds are gray and white. The early morning light reflects and refracts through little raindrop spectrums each a potential origin of rainbows hanging from early budding branches that form acute angles out of the trunk from which they grow. The road is asphalt and gravel. Curbs are torn up and broken from the plowing too aggressive of winter snow. Katie girl and I seem to know where to go. The way this all works, the way it all lays still, yet is a part of a natural flow, amazes me throughout these days and nights, despite how clueless and contrite actions might otherwise represent. The life I see in my small fishbowl world the reach for understanding something so vast and to connect with it is far more easy, I suppose, than actually connecting with you. Until next time, I bid you adieu. Sunrise, waiting for the sunrise, waiting for the sunrise.
Michael Blumenthal, is that you? Yeah, yeah, that's still me. <laughs> it's so nice for you to be with us here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Thank you. My pleasure to be with you. Let me uh, get started first by sharing a little background information for our listeners. Uh, Michael Blumenthal, formerly Director of Creative Writing at Harvard, graduated from the Cornell Law School in 1974 and was visiting professor of law at the West Virginia University College of Law from 2009 through 2017. His first collection of short stories, The Greatest Jewish-American Lover in Hungarian History, was published by Etruscan Press in 2014. And Etruscan also published his eighth book of poems, titled No Hurry, Poems from 2000 through 2012 in 2013. He is the author of the memoir, All My Mothers and Fathers, Harper Collins, 2002, and his novel, Wine Stock Among the Dying, won Hadassah Magazine's Harold U. Riblo Prize for the Best Work of Jewish Fiction. A collection of his radio essays for NPR entitled Just Three Minutes, Please, Thinking Out Loud on Public Radio, was published in 2014. And his collaboration with the baboon conservationist Rita Miljo, Because They Needed Me, The Incredible Struggle of Rita Miljo to Save the Orphaned Baboons of South Africa, was published in May 2016. And his Don't Die, Poems from 2013 through 2021, was published by the Rabbit House Press in 2021. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is so very happy to have on our program Michael Blumenthal. Thank you, sir. What an impressive, very sort of eclectic uh, resume or CV, I should say. <laughs> well, I, eclectic is a nice word for it. I, I, I think it uh, was also the product of a very confused 
<laughs> bunch of years, but uh, it looks good on paper. That's true. <laughs> and uh, well, tell us a bit about that. Like, tell us about your background. You're you are um, where are you from originally? How about that? And and how did you end up with being a writer, a psychotherapist, a translator, law professor, and so on? Uh, well, uh, they're all fairly brief answers. Uh, the, the answer to the second part is most of these things happened by accident, but uh, by nice, uh, positive accidents mostly. Uh, I grew up in, in Washington Heights in New York. Uh, my parents were refugees from the Holocaust who came over in 1938. And uh, it was a largely uh, German, Spanish, English-speaking neighborhood. Uh, English was, I think, third. Uh, and uh, I went to the Bronx High School of Science, and then I, at the age of 16, I went off to college in Binghamton, New York. And, uh, well, you asked me how these things happened. Um, you know, I think uh, it's it's not so flattering to say this, but... You know, for many, many years, I was so lost that I just kind of stumbled from one thing to another. Part of that being because I went to college at a very, very young age, and I was not even just 20 when I graduated. And uh, by the time I really figured out what I was interested in, uh, I was on another track. So I was a bit like a train that had gone quite far down one track and was trying to change tracks. Um, and so I wound up, uh, well, at 20, I became a high school German teacher. I was, the joke was that I was the only teacher whose mother had to sign his contract because <laughs> I was under the, <laughs> um, and then I wound up going to law school after all, uh, you know, I've had, I think I got the highest score on the law boards that anybody in my undergraduate school had ever had. And my brother was a lawyer and you know, on paper, I was a, I guess, economics, political science kind of major, and I was lost. Uh, so I didn't know what to do, uh, and uh, I had just begun being interested in the things that I really was interested in, and so I went off to law school uh, at the age of twenty-two. And uh, and which law school was that? Well, out of curiosity, that was at Cornell. Cornell, that's right. Uh, I, that was in the bio. Right, right. And, uh, and did uh, you enjoy Ithaca as a 22-year-old kid studying law? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Ithaca's a beautiful town, especially if, if you like rain, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, but it is a beautiful town. Uh, I, I didn't too much enjoy law school, uh, you know, at the, but I don't think at that point in my life I would have enjoyed anything. So it didn't really matter <laughs> what I was doing. Uh, but... I didn't quite fit as a lawyer, uh, although uh, I wound up as a law professor. My career sort of ended as a law professor, strangely enough. But uh, I did clerk one summer for David Souter, who later became wow. a Supreme Court justice. Wow. Not when he was on the Supreme Court. He was uh, at the Attorney General's office in New Hampshire. And uh, so, you know, I spent many years wandering around trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. Uh, and so I uh, was lucky enough, uh, maybe because at that period it was still a kind of advantage to be a middle-class, white, Jewish, educated boy from New York. Uh, and you could make the kind of mistakes I made or fall into the kinds of things that I fell into. I don't know if that would be possible now. 
but I was lucky in a sense to come of age at a time when you could still sort of make all kinds of mistakes and still wind up somehow <laughs> with your feet on the ground. Well, why do you think that might not be so possible today? Well, I think, you know, it's a different world. I mean, in, in every possible way, it's a different world, a different world economically. You know, uh, my son's generation can't afford to rent an apartment or buy a house. Uh, it's a different world uh, socioeconomically and culturally, uh, as it should be in some ways. But, uh, you know, it's not a world where just because you're a white middle-class male every door is open to you uh, uh and and closed to to many other people so it's a, it's a different world it, it really is a radically different world uh, you know i don't want to sound so old i'm not that old but uh sometimes i i think back upon what the world of 1969 was and what it is now and it's more surreal than any science fiction could render it the the change the change from 69 to now everything 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 yes and as as i mean the human condition hasn't changed but all the little details in which it has to function have changed totally literary life academic life uh professional life you name it yeah, and, and you, you kind of uh, mentioned that in some ways certain changes, right, had to happen, but uh, because there's injustice and uh, disparity and, and all that, uh, and we can't overlook it, and we shouldn't uh, ignore it. And, but the, I guess there's also some things that maybe aren't better. Uh, is, that, would I, is that fair for me to have in, interpreted? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think many things are not better. Uh, you know, I think uh, that's how history works. You know, some things get better, and some things get worse. It's it's not a straight line, uh, and so some things have clearly gotten better. I, I don't think any person would argue with the fact that uh, we have more just society, not a just society, but more just regarding minorities and gays and all kinds of people than we had 50 years ago. Um, But certain things uh, have gotten arguably worse. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, the fact that we elected Donald Trump as president uh, testifies to that, I think. How much worse can it get than that? (laughs) Yes, it makes me laugh because that that whole period was so absurd. And people... I don't know about where you live, but uh, people still have, you know, Trump signs in their yards around here. Uh, Trump- well, I live in a state that has set, that voted 74% for Trump. Uh, this is the second Trumpiest state in the union after Wyoming. So, uh, yes, <laughs> you can still find many of them here. It's and abs- he would win by more today. Isn't that wild? I mean, it's like, I mean, you are an educated person. Uh, you uh, have spend a lot of your time uh, learning about how the mind works and how to do research, how to communicate, how to, how to be a critical, independent thinker, and then to, to look around and see a lot of fellow citizens uh, who don't exercise any of that, aren't interested in any of that. Isn't, that must drive you nuts. Well, you know, I have never gone over the shock and the shame of Trump's election. It changed my view of everything, but... 
you know, one thing I realized, I, I often write, not often, but I occasionally write editorials for newspapers, and I just wrote a piece uh, called uh, The Mythology of Common Ground. And what one thing that this election and these last 45 years have made me realize is, you know, we talk about looking for common ground as if it was just out there and had gotten misplaced. All we need to do is find it. But what I have come to realize is, we don't have much common ground. I mean, certain of us have common ground with certain others of us, but on a day-to-day level, the lives of people are so different. The lives of people in McDowell County, West Virginia, are so different from my life. Uh, And that, I came to realize that the life, the generic life that I had grown up in, which was, you know, immigrant, white, educated, uh, urban, et cetera, et cetera. That was not the life of this country, uh, clearly, of many, many people in this country. And so I now see everything in another way. I see this country and, and even the world, if you look around what's happening, not just in this country, but the other country I live in, Hungary, uh, has its own version of Trump, except he's a smart version of Trump. Uh, which is even more dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like a DeSantis here, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I don't want to spend too much time talking about that jamoke, but uh, I did do you know find it um, compelling and important to to hear uh, what folks who do value uh, what this country stands for and and also value. Uh, the potential of the human mind, what they, how they respond to what seems to be totally, um, you know, Im- Im- impractical and um, you know, uh, sort of counter, counter uh, productive, uh, especially with your own. What, what people, a lot of people are voting against their own interest, as as I, I you know, I think you probably would agree. But I, I don't. I don't want to spend too much of our conversation about that. We want to talk also about your, your, uh, your writing, and you know what is you. You shared with us that you're try, You were trying to figure out what you wanted to be, what you wanted to do. Is is it safe to say that maybe poetry is is high up there on that list, and and writing is high up there on that list? Well, it certainly became that way. I, I'm not one of those people who knew very young that he wanted to be a writer, and there were no books in my house. My parents weren't educated. The only books we had were Reader's Digest condensed books, uh, so there were no books. Uh, and I didn't really even know you could be a writer. It didn't quite cross my mind, just the way I didn't know you could be a primate zoologist. Uh, and so... What happened, I think, is uh, like many people who stumble into writing, uh, not everybody, but but I was lost and I was trying to get found and I was looking around for ways to find myself and, uh, you know, I'd always been good with language and I'd always liked reading, but I wasn't a real literary person. And then, uh, just as I was graduating from college, all my literary interests started to peak, just as I was at the exit door, instead of at the entrance door. And so, you know, I read suddenly D.H. Lawrence's Women in Love, and that sort of changed my view of things. Uh, Or uh, I read Tolstoy, and then uh, when I was in law school, I'd never been to a poetry reading, for example. 
uh, I went to a poetry reading by Robert Creeley, who's not a poet who had much influence on me as a poet, but the reading had a profound influence on me. I went to the reading, and then for about three weeks in a row, every night I went to the Cornell Library and listened to the tape um, because I was sort of transfixed by the fact that language could be so meaningful, mm. uh, that little bits of language could be so meaningful and powerful as they were to me that night. And uh, then, you know, I graduated and I was still lost. I went to Washington uh, in a job I knew I would hate and did. Uh, and uh, I just started to write. And I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And then, of course, you can't become a writer without being a reader. So I, I also started to read much more. I, I sort of embarked on a self-education program mm -hmm. uh, that took place in the mornings uh, in Montrose Park in D.C. from about six in the morning till the time I had to go to work. Um, and I just kept writing. And of course, like many of us who write, uh, the beginning, it was pretty awful stuff. It was embarrassingly awful stuff. Uh, it took me a long time to to write what I thought was my first poem. I mean, I had been writing things that looked like poems. They had a lot of white space on the page, but they weren't. <laughs> and uh, and then, you know, once that started, uh, I became obsessed. You know, it was all I wanted to do. It was more important than women, even. Uh, you know, it was all I thought about, and was all I, every spare minute, I wanted to re read and write. Uh, and that lasted for <laughs> quite a number of years. When when you say um, a lot of white space on the page, so you figured you, may, you were writing poetry. What do you mean by that, a lot of white space on the page? Well, you know, there are very few things in this world easier to fake than writing a poem. I hate to say it, but I, I believe it's true. You know, uh, most people think of poems as, you know, a, a page with not many words that doesn't go all the way to the right margin, uh, breaks up and is short and is about some emotional subject. And that's what I was writing. And, uh, you know, I, I'll tell you a story. It's, it's a really embarrassing story, but it's a true story. Uh, I was in Washington. I was working as a lawyer for the Federal Trade Commission. I was working on an, uh, an investigation of uh, the California raisin industry. So I was spending most of my days on the telephone with Armenian raisin farmers in Fresno. And uh, I, I was starting to write poetry, and I thought, hmm, well, here I am. You know, I'm, right, I'm a lawyer. I'm thinking about raisins all day. <laughs> I'll write a poem about raisins. And indeed I did. And what's worse, it was just horrific, uh, what's worse, I didn't know anything about the world of literature, so I only, for some reason, I knew about one magazine called Field. And I mailed this poem to Field. I, I, I didn't even know how you do this submitting poem. So I wrote a little, I thought, well, they'll want to know something about me. So I wrote a little cover bio. Michael Blumenthal grew up, you know, not, not bragging, just grew up in Washington Heights. He does this, does that. And I put it in an envelope. And I had enough, I knew enough to put a stamped self-addressed envelope in with it. And I mailed it off. And about in the amount of time it takes for a plane to get from D.C. to Oberlin and back, 
uh, it came back in my mailbox, and I opened it up, and below my little bio were written the following exact words, because uh, I'll never forget them. Dear Michael Blumenthal, don't ever lay a trip like this on any decent magazine, dot, dot, dot. It marks you, comma, the editors. And then there was a P.S. <laughs> this poem was really horrific. It was worse than a, a, a Madison Avenue commercial. I mean, the first line of it was, uh, <laughs> I have to laugh, it's really humiliating almost. The first line of it was, a raisin is some sunshine you can eat, which sounds like, Del Monte commercial. <laughs> and the P.S. from the editor said, Raisin equals little black boy, particularly offensive, because there was a line in it. This is just to show you how horribly untalented I was. Uh, there was a line in it, uh, a raisin is a little black boy left in the bathtub too long, which, in addition to being kind of racist, was awful. Oh, my God. So anyway, that's how my poetry career began. And after that, I think it was six, seven, eight years before I dared uh, to send out a poem again. You and know, how old? They, they how taught old? me a very valuable lesson. How old were you when all that happened? I was twenty-five. Twenty-five, yeah. So, relatively speaking, a kid. Um, so, yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah you, 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 uh, you really made an impression on the industry at first. It seems. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what, I'm curious, what about it, the the law? When you read the law, you know, I I studied law too, um, and I oftentimes find the law to be beautiful when it's you know certain passages uh, inspire you know a sense of uh, you know an ideal of justice or uh -huh. and such. Do you do you find uh -huh. that too? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I've always liked rhetoric. You know, I've often in my spare time sort of write presidential inaugural addresses and speeches. I was a speechwriter for a short time in Washington, not for the president, but for the head of the Humanities Endowment. Um, yeah, I think, and, and my, my friend and former boss, uh, David Souter, uh, was a good example of that because he really found the law to be beautiful. He was a very poetic person, you know, a very literate person. Uh, so yeah, I, I, it's a different kind of beauty, and and sometimes, of course, it can be just boilerplate, boring, repetitive right. uh, English. But you know, I think almost any language has the capacity to be beautiful if it's used by someone who has the ability to make it beautiful. <laughs> You know, right. whether it's medical language or, uh, but, you know, that's not everybody for sure. Well said. Well, we're talking with Michael Blumenthal today on uh, Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And, uh, you know, you you uh, mentioned Hungary, and you spend a lot of time there, uh, uh, summers in particular. A lot. <laughs> what, why? Why? What's what's the connection? And why why do you well, like it so much? Well, you know, again, I, I told you the most things that happened to me happened by accident, and this kind of happened by accident. I was, uh, it was 1992. I'd been to Hungary briefly in 1986 to Budapest and thought it was beautiful and interesting, but I wasn't there long. I was there for about a week. And then 1992, I was teaching at Harvard, and I invited E.L. Doctorow to give a reading. And he came, and he read, and then there was a party reception for him afterwards. 
and he said, I want to introduce you to Giulia Debrecini, my Hungarian translator. And it turned out that his Hungarian translator was had a year's fellowship at, at, at Harvard. And we became friends. She had a child exactly my son's age, and, and we became friends. And then one day we were talking, and I said, oh, I you know really like Hungary. I'd love to go back there sometime. And she said, well, why don't you apply for a Fulbright? I can get you an invitation. And that's how I wound up in Hungary, really just by accident. Uh, and then... You know that changed my life in many ways. Uh, you what know, year? I, I, what year was that? Got, what, were, what year was the first? That day? was 1992. Thank you. And uh, the Fulbright was extended three times, so I, I, I lived in Budapest for four years, from 92 to 96. Uh, my son was two years old and spoke fluent Hungarian by the time he was three, uh, and. Uh, as as will happen, I met a lot of interesting people. I met some, you know, very well-known writers and dissidents, uh, uh, among them uh, George Conrad, the writer who mm. was a, a well-known dissident and a well-known mm-hmm. writer. Yeah. And one thing led to another, and then one day I was having a drink with George, and he said, well, why don't you bring your family to our little village and rent a house in the vineyard for the summer? And it sounded terribly romantic. So yes. we drove out there. And it turned out it was just a beautiful, beautiful place, and rented a house and uh, spent two or three summers like that. And then, I guess it was 1997, I, we were living in Texas at the time, and I was invited to the Czech Republic to give a talk, and I stopped uh, in, in the same village, in the Hungarian village where George and his family lived. I stayed with him. And I'm a very impetuous person. I'm not a very... I don't think things over too well, but I sometimes do smart things by accident. (laughs) And I decided I really wanted to buy a house in the village. And so I asked around, what was there a house for sale? And there happened to be a house for sale that had been the priest's house. It was uninhabited, had been uninhabited for about 10 years. And I called a friend of mine who was an architect in Budapest. And I said, would you come out here and look at this house with me? And, we couldn't get the keys, so we we just looked through the broken windows sort of into the house, and I said, should I buy it? And he said, yeah, buy it. And so I had one day left in, the, in, in Hungary before I was flying back to the States. I literally drove to the nearest town of any size, to Polsa. I found a lawyer. We went to search the deed. It was uh, because foreigners couldn't buy land in the vineyards, but they could buy in the village. Uh, I signed a whole bunch of papers. I gave him a check. I said, buy it. (laughs) It belonged to the church. And I flew off. And uh, about a week later, he bought the house from the church. And I never saw the house until a year later when I arrived. Uh, I opened the door, and the architect was sitting at the kitchen table, and he handed me the keys to my now renovated house. Wow. And that was 27 years ago. Wow. Good move. Yeah. <laughs> good move. <laughs> it and was a good move, yeah. It yeah, was a good move. No yeah. doubt. 
And, uh, you know, the, the cost of living, I'm sure, there is, is more uh, affordable than if you were trying to buy a house in Paris or something. So that's... Well, you know, listen, the truth is I couldn't... I, I don't even want to tell you what I paid for the house. It's embarrassing. But I couldn't buy a house anywhere else, you know. Uh, yeah. That was one of the reasons. Uh, you know, I couldn't buy... I mean, I couldn't have bought a parking space uh, in Boston for what I paid for that house. I hear you. Southern Italy, I have a connection there. I go there often. I I see homes and villages where people just don't live anymore because they're too removed from any sort of economic opportunities. You can buy a a three-bedroom house for what's equivalent to $15,000, you know? It's crazy. Listen, you could buy my entire village for what a studio apartment in Manhattan would cost you. You could buy two villages, I think. And, you know, there are only 270 people in the village, so it's hardly a thriving metropolis. Yeah, that, that says something. I'm not sure. I'm going to have to reflect on that. But it, that says something. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're just about getting to the end of the time we have this go-around, though I'd love to talk with you again, Michael Blumenthal. Thaw, I, I do want to try to string it together. I mean, we, we've been talking about quite a few things. And one thing that's stuck out to me is, is you mentioned early in the conversation, the human condition, how that hasn't changed much. Uh, though a lot of things have changed significantly in the way our culture is, I guess, at least in the United States, uh, from 69 to today. Uh, what do you think we're going to be headed or where are we headed in, in the not-too-distant future based on what you're seeing and what you know regarding the human condition? Well, you know, I don't know who it was. I can, can't quite remember. It was somebody from my Jungian days where I was very, very who said something about the, one of the difficulties of human life was that the human soul or the human psyche couldn't keep up with the pace of change, you know, that, that what was happening in the external world was happening at a pace so much more rapid than what the internal world could accommodate. And I think that that is the biggest danger we live in, you know, that we are living in a world that nobody seems to be able to stop and reflect and ask the questions, is this doing us any good? And you know, that's true of technology, the Internet, uh, consumption, Amazon, whatever it may be. Uh, and I think that that's the major danger to our sort of spiritual existence, you know, how to keep some sense of sanity and groundedness in a world, you know. Uh, this morning I went for an MRI, uh, you know, uh, and... An MRI is a good thing. You can find out all kinds of things about what's wrong with you. But it's it's remarkable. I'm, I'm, I'm in this little tunnel, and this machine is bleeping away and somehow taking pictures through through reflections of hydrogen atoms. It's remarkable. Uh, and some of these things are good, but I think it's the real danger of our lives. And you can see it now, you know, with the mental health of young people, what's happening with technology. Joseph Brodsky, who was a kind of friend of mine, once said to me, uh, you know, that the real danger of human life is that the power of evil uh, is greater than the power of good. And I don't know if that's true, but uh, the forces that somehow have evil results in our lives uh, 
uh, are very, very powerful and often seem out of our control. You know, and that I think doesn't bode too well <laughs> for the future. Well, I, in, in a lot of respects, agree with what you just stated. Though, I hope we're wrong. <laughs> I hope we're wrong too. I, I don't want to leave you on a pessimistic note. No. I hope we're wrong. Uh, you know, my wife about thirty times a day says uh, the words "we are going in the wrong direction." <laughs> I guess she's probably smarter than most of us about those things. Maybe yeah. she's probably right. Yeah, my wife's smarter than me too. I know. Right. Thank God. Right. We're lucky. Yeah. Well, it, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Michael. And uh, if if people want to look up to see what's going on, maybe find some of your work. I guess just go go to the regular places. Is there a website or anything like that you like to share? Uh, well, I I have a website that I don't don't even know if it's done. I never look at it. Uh, you know, there are <laughs> that frequent question that people ask: Where can I find your book? as though it was some kind of mystery to find a book. <laughs> you can find my book where you find everybody's book, you know. Uh, unfortunately, not in the bookstores too often. Right. But certainly online, you know, and from the publisher, and you know, it's, not, it's no magic. <laughs> well, yeah, we don't want to plug those businesses. I get, I get it. Uh, right, yeah. I mean, the best thing, of course, is always to, to buy from the publisher because the publisher gets the money and, and they need it very often, especially small publishers. So my present publisher, for example, uh, Rabbit House Press, is a very small publisher in Kentucky, and uh, they need the money a lot more than Jeff Bezos does. Right. So contact uh, the Rabbit House Press if you want to uh, get his latest book of poems, uh, Michael's latest book of poems, and uh, then you could uh, also... Harper Harper's uh, uh, Collins, right? Harper Collins uh, is another publisher, and the Truscan Press. Either way, um, you're a fascinating man, and you have a good uh, sense of humor. And I had a really nice time talking with you, Michael. Me too, Lawrence. Even though I didn't call you by that radio name of yours, but uh, I'll get it. Uh, e W Conundrum Demure. You'll have to tell me next conversation. How you came up with that? I'd love to. That's a, that, that's 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 a deal. Okay. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Lawrence. Have Take a good care. one. Bye.
an excerpt from Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. All happy families are alike, but an unhappy family is unhappy after its own fashion. Everything had gone wrong in the Oblonsky household. The wife had found out about her husband's relationship with their former French governess and had announced that she could not go on living in the same house with him. This state of affairs had already continued for three days and was having a distressing effect on the couple themselves, on all the members of the family, and on the domestics. They all felt that there was no sense in their living together under the same roof and that any group of people who chanced to meet at a wayside inn would have more in common than they, the members of the Oblonsky family, and their servants. The wife did not leave her rooms, and the husband stayed away from home all day. The children strayed all over the house, not knowing what to do with themselves. The English governess had quarreled with the housekeeper and had written a note asking a friend to find her a new place. The head cook had gone out right at dinner time the day before. The undercook and the coachman had given notice. On the third morning after the quarrel, Prince Stefan Arkadyevich Oblonsky, Steva, as he was generally called by his friends, awoke at his usual time, which was about eight o'clock, not in his wife's bedroom, but on a Morocco leather couch in his study. He turned his plump, pampered body over on the springs, as if he had a mind for a long sleep, and he hugged the pillow, pressing his cheek to it. But with a start, he sat up on the sofa and opened his eyes. Yes, now how did it go, he thought, recalling a dream. Now, how did it go? Oh, yes, Alabin was giving a dinner in Darmstadt. No, it wasn't Darmstadt, but some American place. Yes, but the dream Darmstadt was in America. That's it. Alabin was giving a dinner on glass tables, and the tables were singing Il Mio Tesoro. No, not Il Mio Tesoro, something better. And there were some little decanters who were women, he remembered. Oblonsky's eyes began to sparkle merrily, and he smiled as he continued with his thoughts. Yes, it was a nice dream, very nice indeed. There was a lot that was capital, but not to be expressed in words or even thought about clearly now that I am awake. Then, noticing the streak of light from one side of the heavy blinds, he cheerfully thrust his feet down to feel for the slippers, which his wife had worked in gold Morocco for his last birthday present. Next, without getting up, he stretched out his hand, as he had done for the last nine years, to where his dressing gown usually hung in the bedroom. And then... Memory flashed on him how and why it was that he was sleeping not in his wife's room, but in the study. The smile vanished from his face, and he frowned. Oh, dear, 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 he groaned, remembering what had happened, and he went over all the details of the scene with his wife, seeing the complete hopelessness of his position, and most tormenting thought of all, the fact that it was his own fault.
Prince. Tree trunk next to the slam dunk, you said you could provide. I, me, my, do not abide, dude. Rude boy and crude girl. Prince promises a twirl. If only you can remember how to be sweet and complete with charm and soul. I can barely pack my laundry sack. This self-destruction must end before I become too old. the shape you're in Finger on your eyebrow And left hand on your hip Thinking that you're such a lady killer Think you're so slick Well, all right Mi carro, Rosita. Usted sabe que te quiero. Pero usted me quita todo. Ya me robaste mi televisión y mi radio. Ahora quiero llevar mi carro. No me haga así, Rosita. Ven aquí. Hey, usted que es al lado, Rosita.
And there you have it, episode 466 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Michael Blumenthal, Leo Tolstoy, and these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, The Clash, Death Cab for Cutie, The Hungarian National Orchestra, The Band, Mink DeVille, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, Let's do our best to enjoy this time. Take care of yourself and others too. <laughs>